0: Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, here with Professor Akhil Amar. Hello, Akil.
1: Hey, Andy. And not just another episode, but a special episode in oh so many ways. An anniversary episode of sorts, but also as we tape... the episode at the end of the fiscal year Uh, but andy actually i think you're in the new fiscal year because you're in france and it's actually already july 1st that's um, correct as we ever scholars
0: fiscal year has begun
1: (laughs) as as, as we tape this but so much happening just today on things that are relevant to this podcast this is a special episode and as i said I, i think it's our we we've made it now to um our one and a half year anniversary so to speak
0: Yes, exactly right.
1: Happy anniversary.
0: Yes, same to you. But yeah, fifty-two and twenty-six is seventy-eight. So we had, we had seventy-eight episodes as of our last one, and uh, so it's a coincidence, but at the same time, perhaps not, because we you know the Supreme Court finishes its term at about halfway through the year, so it, it makes sense from that point of view. And because it's a milestone for us it's, and it's a milestone for the country because the end of this term has brought a lot of big news, um, we thought we'd sort of look at those two things in context of, of each other. In other words, I think that when we look back over the year and a half of this podcast, if you've been listening to these episodes, 1 through 78, and then you come to this Supreme Court earthquake that occurred over the last couple of weeks, I would say that nothing that happened would surprise you because really all of it had been discussed in detail on our podcast objectively and pretty much what we said was going to happen has happened. And of course, that's, that was borne out just today when the Supreme Court granted cert on an ISL case, the North Carolina case and of course we just finished three episodes about it telling you that it's coming and it's crucial and it
1: and it happened and on that on that one andy because yes um we're going to make the case in this special episode for this podcast your your time we really respect you our audience your time is very valuable and candidly there are other podcasts you can listen to and we encourage you to do so but if you can only listen to one we're going to make the case this episode, why this should be the one in actually making you, the audience, smarter, giving you the real good arguments on each side, um, predicting what will happen, offering sensible prescriptions about what should happen. So let's just take ISL, which many people hadn't heard of before. It's not just that we had three episodes on it. We had three episodes about the definitive article on the topic, And we had the lead author of of that article, my my brother Vic, on in the last two episodes of of that three-episode series. The press is now talking about, if you read the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or Fox, this may be, people are saying, possibly NPR, the biggest case of, possibly of, of the decade. It could, depending on how it is decided, be bigger than the earthquake we just lived through. It it could, unless Vic and I prevail, result in the ability of Donald Trump to easily be re-elected in 2024 if state legislatures are allowed to pull a certain fast one on the rest of us, on the Constitution, um, on, on on the American people. So that was just Today, the court granted certiorari, and everyone out there is beginning to talk about ISL, and frankly, I'm being straight. Everyone out there is beginning to talk about the, um, if if they hadn't already, the article that Vic wrote and that that I co-wrote, and that we explained to you, the audience, in the last three episodes. So that's one thing that happened today. There are about five things just today, Andy. But that was one, and it's a big one. It could be the biggest case of next year or maybe the decade. And you're going to, and you've already, audience, learned much more about it on this podcast than any other podcast, almost definitionally. Well, as you mentioned, a lot happened today. So Justice Breyer stepped down. um, So hold on just on that. You and I had a debate um, on whether he should have stepped down earlier. And, oh, you beat me up and down (laughs) about the head and shoulders. um, And... And oh, you had a point. And see, so the audience, we, Andy and I don't always agree. Sometimes he says this and I say that and you can hear both sides. And Andy, I, I, I think you made many good arguments. I said, listen, it could be the case that it'll all work out. And in fact, um, if he steps down in year two of the Biden administration rather than year one, as you wanted, it could actually give Joe Biden a little bit of momentum when he needs it going into the midterm. And, and maybe that actually has happened because it's not just that Breyer stepped down today, for whom I clerked way back when, and happy anniversary or you know, um, uh, happy retirement day to you, boss. You, you've earned it. You deserve it. It's just a shout-out to one of my favorite people in the world, Stephen Breyer. But it's also the first black woman on the Supreme Court, and, and she has a name, and we talked about her, Katenji Brown Jackson, another Breyer clerk. So that happened at the same time, and wow! first time that the court will have four women sitting simultaneously and wow but we had episodes not just about whether Breyer should retire you know first year or second year but also about the confirmation process and and we talked about it in connection with Katanji Brown Jackson's confirmation process and how um it wasn't a, a a perfect one and and we gave you ideas about what a good confirmation process, a better confirmation process, would look like. And we had Vic Amar on for that, because Vic and I have actually written over many years about how to reform the confirmation process. And it's broken right now, it really is. And we'll talk about that in more detail today. But
0: of course, what's been, what's been on most people's minds have been the cases that came down at the end of the term. And of those cases, there's no question that the Dobbs case, the abortion case, that overturned Roe and Casey, um, certainly is the one that's gathered the most ink, and I think that's generated the most emotion, certainly that I've that I've been exposed to.
1: And let's just think about that, we, Andy. Let's count up all the all the episodes that we have. Just like counting up all all the reasons that we gave you in earlier episodes for um, our suggestion of having. An 18-year term limit for justices. So, Andy, if memory serves, we had an episode before the oral argument in Dobbs when we predicted correctly that it would be all about precedent or that you'd hear a lot about precedent. Then we had, I think, um, an episode with Ed Whalen about Dobbs and an episode with Linda Greenhouse that was largely about Dobbs and and then, so that, that was three episodes, uh, um, centered on the oral argument. Well, actually, and then when the, actually
0: before the oral argument, we had two episodes on... Oh, two precedence. episodes, on, right. Two episodes on then we on had precedent. one on the argument. Okay. Then we had Ed Whalen. Then we had Linda Green.
1: Okay, so that's five. Okay, so this is and just that, like, you know, I couldn't count. To, you know, we I, you know, I said, oh, the three or four arguments for term limits, and we came up with 18. I thought there were three. There are five just for that and uh, around had, Dobbs.
0: And then when the... The leak of the of the purported opinion came out. We yes, had, the, the Dobbs draft. Yeah. So then we had four more because we had, you know, one about the draft and then one about the leak, and the one about after Dobbs, I, and then one about could there be a deal?
1: Wow. So we so and, we and we told you that of course we weren't unusual or unique in saying oh this is a big case everyone uh, but 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 we have not slighted. This and and we did. I frankly I think see it coming. But I think that what's
0: more important, in some sense, than how many episodes we had was the nature of the episodes. Here's what we didn't have: we, you know, you and I are both pro-choice, and yet we didn't have um, episodes that said, "Oh, you know, it's uh, it it it's got to come out this way. It's got to come out because of all the precedents. It's got to be the same. You know." We didn't predict things based on the way we wanted it to come out. We, or, and, it, and when I say we, let's let's be realistic here. This is your podcast. And, uh, and I'm, my role here is to bring out the wisdom that, that you bring to the table. You made predictions based on your knowledge of the justices, what kind of arguments you expected to see from both sides, how we could understand them. And first of all, those are precisely the arguments that we heard. Um, when the oral argument took place. And then when we talked about the, um, the draft, we analyzed the draft, and, it, and of course it didn't take much to say that the, you know, the draft is similar to the final opinion in many ways, but we, we, you know, we offered a possibility for a deal that might be able to, to avoid um, what actually happened. We didn't say it was likely to happen, but we gave you know, certain arguments that we might root for. And now today we're going to take a look and compare what actually happened to, you know, what we talked about maybe should happen or could happen or approach that might. The point here is that this is somewhat dispassionate analysis, even though we might personally have strong opinions. Right. So um, we didn't scream and yell, you know, when we didn't get what we wanted, you know, and. uh, Yes.
1: And you're a doctor, and you actually have to make um, diagnoses and predictions and prognoses. The case for Trump, I'm an anti, I've always been a fierce anti-Trumper, but people say, oh, promises made, promises kept. Well, this is an episode about predictions made, and we're going to actually then see whether the predictions actually uh, came true or not. And we also offered certain prescriptions. Um, as well as predictions, and this special episode, we're going to go back and check it against the track record, what what actually happened. Right, and I, and again,
0: it's not about, you know, chest-thumping that, oh, we were right about this, we were right about that, so much as I think that when we look to see, look, we're, we need to be self-critical, we need to look at
1: what we've yes. done and see whether how we can yes. improve and whether we're doing yes. what, we, what we set out to do. And but on at least one thing, I'm going to have to eat a little bit of crow. Um, so we, we will. There's, I think, one prediction that I made that was a little bit too exuberant, but um, we'll talk about that.
0: Just like we're critical of the justices to say, you know, well, they should have done this. This is something that's consistent with, you know, their... Um, general opinions, but would have been more effective, Mm -hmm. you know, getting perhaps what we perceive. We we have to be
1: self-critical. This is, this is, you know, a good time for us to assess, you know, what we've done well and what we could do even better.
0: And in doing that, I think in preparing for the podcast and thinking about some of these things, I think that we found that the, that going through that exercise actually helped us see what the cases were about on a deeper level. That's why we think it's useful to
1: do that in the podcast today. Yeah, yeah. in the course of of analyzing what we've said in our podcast, we're also, it, it turns out, it's going to be a good lens for thinking about, for example, all the justices. Exactly so. It's going to give us a very interesting lens on all of that. Um, in the tradition of Amarcus constitution, it's a little bit of uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, you know, their perspective on, on the action in, in the play Hamlet or something, but but it turns out in thinking about what you and I have talked about in this podcast, it's going to give us a really interesting way of thinking about a, a, the Dobbs case in particular um, in this episode. And then, of course, we'll talk about the other cases um, uh, in this earthquake in companion episodes in the days to come.
0: And I think we're trying to continue our, our role of being dispassionate observers at the same time as people are actually around us are quite passionate. If you read the dissenting opinion in Dobbs, it starts off with a litany of horrors that await you know, women uh, in America, to, in, in the near future, and you know we're not insensitive to that. Um, and as I said, we're both pro-choice. We, I, I don't want to see those those horrors come to pass, and perhaps they will, and that's that's a bad thing. But from the point of view of of analyzing the constitutional aspects of it, um, we, I think we have to take a somewhat cerebral approach, even though it's an emotional issue. From a legal point of view, it's we, we need a cerebral approach. So.
1: Listeners, and, please and, don't and,
0: consider this insensitive, but rather, we're giving you what we've said we would give you, and, and what we have given you, and what we will continue to give you.
1: And and Andy, you know, I'm a con law professor, but and you're a doctor, and and your training here is very important in what you just said. You know, you 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 can't get too emotional. You have to diagnose the situation and make a prediction for the patient about what will happen if we don't do this, if we do do that, or we could do this other thing and you're dealing with life and death situations and it's not as if you're in with that but but as a professional you, you have to, to understand what's going on. So
0: if we look back at these these predictions and these things that you that you've been involved with I think a lot of the ruhahas has been centering recently around Justice Kavanaugh. He's certainly been at the mm-hmm. center of things.
1: Mm-hmm. And Literally, I think he was the pivot. He is the fifth out of nine. He is the median vote in Dobbs and he writes a, special, a separate opinion, he, so, so he's the center.
0: And of course, as we know, you wrote an op-ed in the New York Times right when he was nominated and then you uh, testified before the Judiciary Committee regarding his, uh, his, his nomination to the court. So why don't we go back and and look at that and uh, how see what you said at the time, particularly what was relevant to the abortion issue, and how you feel about it now, and also maybe have you taken some criticism for it and maybe evaluate that criticism was it correct was it incorrect where do you right. stand on this
1: Oh brother you you said it I've taken a lot of criticism in places like um, Twitter. Um, and I myself don't tweet, and I'm not going to try to defend myself against criticism in 140 characters or 280. I'm not quite sure that I'm able to do that, but you, the audience, deserves to hear what I have to say about various critiques, because we are asking you to, to listen to this podcast, to prioritize it, even above all others, and you're entitled to say, hmm, I'm not sure I want to spend a lot of time with a fellow who has a bad track record of prediction and prescription. So let's go back and roll the tape and try to uh, assess what I did say and didn't say and why. And do I still stand by it? So I did write this op-ed for The New York Times. It was uploaded about five minutes after President Donald Trump announced the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh because they had it at the ready. They weren't, they didn't have 100% certainty who was going to be nominated. And so they asked several scholars, I think, to write pieces about different possible nominees. I was asked to write about Kavanaugh and I did and, and it was ready to go. And I didn't pick the title they did, A Liberals Case for Brett Kavanaugh or something like that. And I do stand by what I said and we'll talk about it in more detail. In, in just a moment, but here's one criticism, and you'll see it out there. I don't want to hide it from you. Oh, Amar's a tool. He's just sucking up to the justices because he wants access to power or something like that. And here's my answer. You know, I, I think have many flaws, but I don't think that's uh, one of them. And, and here's, audience, why you can check this out for yourself. I think it was our very um, uh, first series, um, our second episode, uh, on Bullets Dodged, in which I told the audience that a unanimous Supreme Court decision uh, by a, a dear friend of mine, Elena Kagan, was, I thought, dead wrong in the Chiafalo case. Ways to win friends and influence people by attacking all nine of the justices saying, oh, they really screwed the pooch, but in my view, they did. And we dodged bullets, and you can go back and listen to that episode, Um, but they said basically that members of the electoral um, college, it was perfectly okay to require them to vote as pledged, and I said, that's not going to work in a whole bunch of situations. What happens if the person that you're pledged to vote for is dead? And they they dropped a foot, and I said, oh, well, death might be different. They said, might? Okay, but what happens... You know, Justice Kagan, she wrote the opinion. What happens if it's not a death, but a stroke or something else? And you can listen to the episode, but I promise you, it's a pretty harsh criticism of the entire Supreme Court. So again, I have flaws, but but unwillingness to criticize the court or its members is not one of them. And by the way, if I, and when the court does disagree, that was unanimous. So And I disagreed with them all, but if I'm backing Justice X, in a contested situation, well, you know, then to that extent I'm critiquing Justice Y, who's on the other side, you see, so I don't take positions to try to suck up to the justices, I take positions because I think they're right, and then I'll tell you why I actually thought Kavanaugh was basically the right person for the job. But Andy, you and I offline have talked about the context in which I had to, you know, basically make an assessment of Kavanaugh, um, which is, um, and you've helpfully reminded, you know, me um, and the audience exactly what the strategic context was of, of that choice. So why don't you maybe just t- tell others what you mentioned to me offline. Right, well of course the
0: nomination was made by a Republican president, Donald Trump, um, in a situation where he had a Republican Senate and therefore was likely to see whatever nominee that he put forth confirmed. And so that was quite different than what we saw right before that when President Obama nominated Merrick Garland into the teeth of a Republican Senate, so a Senate of the opposite party. So it was a different context. Um, So it was a context where, where you're going to get um, a Republican president with a Republican Senate so you're going to get essentially a Republican justice to the degree that a that a justice has a has
1: a party. And so what we saw in Dobbs is all the Democrats on one side in bottom line result and all the Republicans on the other side okay And that's not always true but it is true in certain situations. So Brett Kavanaugh was not, actually a Trump person. He was a Federal Society person and I wanted a Federal Society person because, and, and this is your, to your next point, I'm a scholar of the appointments process and I know it's almost impossible for a president to be defeated again and again and again in the appointments process if his party controls the Senate. Maybe you can knock off one or two, but not 18, and there were 18 people on the list, and my view was the following. Actually, of the people on the list, how many of them, let's take Roe versus Wade, for example, how many of them were going to actually be anti-Roe? All of them. So unless you tell me the following, and this is what I wrote in the op-ed, and this is what I said in my testimony, which we'll talk about in in just a minute, I hope, Andy, but unless you tell me that anyone else on the list was going to be better, Or you've got some theory that you can actually knock off each person on that list. How is that gonna happen? You're gonna break serve 18 times. You know, you're gonna win an away game 18 times in a row. Um, um, So, now, people say, oh, professor, but you didn't tell us that he was gonna be opposed to Roe versus Wade. I actually did. Um, it's very explicit in my Senate testimony. And I wrote an op-ed actually directed to Susan Collins by name. And I, I repeated this in my testimony uh, on behalf of, of Kavanaugh. And just to remind everyone, this is long before Christine Blasey Ford and I took no position on any of the issues I'm implicated by that because I didn't have knowledge of the facts. But, but here's what I said about abortion. Senator Collins, this is a quote, it's in my Senate testimony, we're going to put it online for you all. Senator Collins cares deeply about women's reproductive rights. So do I. Unborn human life is precious, but pregnancies and potential pregnancies can raise intricate medical and moral complexities, and in this domain, I generally trust women more than I trust government officials. Close parenthesis. On issues of reproductive choice, there are no guarantees that a future Justice Kavanaugh would rule the same way that Senator Collins might prefer. But that is equally or more true of all the other would-be nominees on Trump's long list. If Collins were to sink Kavanaugh, Trump could easily nominate someone else, who would likely be less open to Collins' vision of reproductive rights, but harder for senators to torpedo. Consider, for example, Judge Amy Coney Barrett, an earnest acolyte of Anton Scalia with a compelling life story but less personal exposure to liberals and a less distinguished judicial track record. Moderates and liberals should be careful what we wish for. So one thing I was saying is that I thought Amy Coney Barrett was the next most likely person, which it turns out she was. So that was a prediction. Another thing is I thought she would actually be not as open on certain issues we'll we'll see but in the Dobbs decision I think Kavanaugh was the most moderate of the five justices who signed on to Justice Alito's opinion and that includes two other Trump nominees Gorsuch and Barrett so let's let's talk about that because we said
0: that in by going through this analysis we would find points in the in the opinion that that were that mattered and so you're bringing up this point that Kavanaugh you believe was more moderate than the other justices that were in the majority so right. in what respect was he more moderate and why does it matter and why does that respect matter?
1: Andy later on when the Alito draft is is leaked I write a piece in The Wall Street Journal and I talk about the importance of the right to travel that Mississippi isn't trying to fence its women in the way Missouri is. And in an episode which we called the Dobbs Deal, we talked about how important it would be if we we're trying to limit the damage of this opinion, to emphasize how important it is that Missouri isn't trying to fence its women in. And who knows who is listening, but it's possible. Um, one of Justice Kavanaugh's clerks was listening in. All I can tell the audience is, he went out of his way in Dobbs to write a separate opinion, emphasizing the importance of the right to travel, and saying that he thought actually a state could not constitutionally prohibit its women from crossing a state line and getting abortion services in another state that it was more accommodating and liberal. He went out of his way to talk about and, and to say not just that that's an issue, but that he thought it was clear that the Constitution had a right to travel. He, I think he, he mentioned um, the intersta- uh, the Article 4 uh, provision, so uh, Justice Barrett didn't do that, Justice Alito didn't do that, Justice Gorsuch didn't do that, Justice Thomas didn't do that. Kavanaugh did, and so I actually think Kavanaugh has been true to my prediction that he would actually be in the middle. And you can say, this is an extreme opinion, there is no middle. Okay, you can say that, but almost mathematically by definition on a court of nine, and if you just array them left to right, there's a pivot, that's the fifth vote, And, and that was Kavanaugh. He was less extreme then And we'll talk about Clarence Thomas and we'll talk about Alita, but he was, he was less extreme on a really important issue, the right of travel issue. Now, we had talked about some other things that maybe could have been softeners and an opinion that still would have upheld the Mississippi law. And Roberts was softer still, and that was um, predicted in, by me in the, the Wall Street Journal piece, which we'll, we'll talk about later on. But in general, I have predicted that Kavanaugh and Roberts would be actually pretty close together. And in fact, they have been over the course of the term. We'll talk about other cases um, in, in later episodes in which I think we see that. But the right to travel was really important. And Kavanaugh went out of his way to, um, to, to say that's rock solid.
0: Okay, so we, we agree that the, that the right to travel is really important. But of course, it wasn't really at issue in this case, so it's dictum.
1: You know, you can say all I the that Russian
0: that you like, dictum. You're, you're, you know, I, you're I do, dictum. and, and that the barbary was victim.
1: You know, and so forth. It but, was, and, and that the reasoning. You know, one person's reasoning is another person's dictum. Um, Kavanaugh saying, "Here's why I'm voting to uphold the law because it has this safety valve." and he's saying oh if it didn't have the safety valve that would be a totally different issue for me so so again whether you call that dictum or you know part of the reason it it wasn't in the majority opinion and he went out of his way to highlight this fact
0: well the reason that I'm point that I'm emphasizing the fact that it's dictum in this context is because someone that that might hear that argument particularly someone who's quite disturbed by this opinion the, the the overall opinion might say oh its dictum and that means that he doesn't he's not really held to it and he's he's a liar he lied in his in his confirmation he lied to Susan Collins and therefore we can't believe this either um, so so what good
1: is it um, fair enough So that's a perfect segue on whether the nominees lied here's what I said in the rest of that op-ed which I, I actually want people to read. I'm proud of that op-ed. They gave me only a certain number of words, a very limited number, and I talked about Kavanaugh why I thought he was the best of the lot, that I thought he would be moderate and intellectual. Um, and we've we talked about moderation. On, uh, we can talk about the fact that he actually reads scholarship, that, and that will be hugely important in ISL. It's been the last three episodes. The rest of the op-ed said the confirmation process is deeply dysfunctional. And um, because the nominees don't really answer the questions. that I actually talk about that and, and offer a proposal um, in uh, that op-ed. Our audience can go back and listen to other episodes when Vic and I talk about the confirmation process being broken. I don't think that the nominees lie when they said something is settled precedent, and then they later, you know vote to overrule it. I don't think that I lied or, actually misspoke when I actually said in my testimony that I thought that Kavanaugh would be a thoughtful view about precedent. So here's what I say actually about precedent and then I'll tell you what Kavanaugh said. Uh, This is a piece for The Hill which is for especially House and Senate staffers and senators. It was during the confirmation hearings uh, mid-September 2018. September 14th, to be specific, and here's what I say. For many thoughtful judges, the real rule book is the set of precedents laid down by earlier judges. I'm comparing judges to umpires and say umpires just follow the rule book, and for many judges, the, the rule book um, is the set of precedents laid down by earlier judges. But for textualist and originalist judges, and Kavanaugh is a textualist and originalist in key respects, the most fundamental rule book is the text of the Constitution itself as originally understood by the generation that ratified the text. Text and precedent sometimes conflict, and this makes the art of proper judging far more difficult than good umpiring. Kavanaugh himself, of course, is acutely aware of this, so I'm actually signaling that, yes, he takes precedent seriously, but you need to understand that for an originalist, you know, that that actually doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to follow precedent um, if you think it's clearly mistaken. Here's what I said in my te- Senate testimony. That was for the Hill, but here's what I said also in my testimony in an appendix. Senator Collins has repeatedly spoken of the importance of selecting jurists who respect precedent. Precedent is indeed important but more so for lower court judges who must faithfully follow what the Supreme Court has decreed in past cases. As a lower court judge, Brett Kavanaugh has generally been a dutiful deputy with an excellent record of affirmance by the Supreme Court. But precedent operates differently on the Supreme Court itself. The justices can and at times must overrule or narrow their own previous rulings if it becomes clear that these rulings incorrectly interpreted the Constitution itself. The Constitution, and not the case law, is America's supreme law of the land. In the gravest judicial decision of the last century, the Supreme Court in Brown v. Board of Education buried the erroneous segregationist ruling of Plessy v. Ferguson, and instead faithfully followed the Constitution itself, which promises racial equality. Aligning precedent with the true meaning of the Constitution's words and spirit requires consummate skill, legal skill and judgment. Over many years and on many issues, Kavanaugh has shown just this kind of legal acumen. Other lower court judges may call themselves originalists, jurists who pay special attention to the original meaning of the Constitution's words. But Kavanaugh has demonstrated in his decisions and writings that he actually has studied the Constitution and its history in impressive detail. He has also shown that he is an originalist who understands the role of precedent. No other would-be justice realistically on the horizon has shown comparable skill in harmonizing strong fidelity to original meaning with proper respect for precedent and tradition. Now people who don't haven't, you know, don't understand what I'm trying to say. I said, you say he's going to follow precedent. I said, yes, but not come hell or high water. I said he has a proper regard for precedent. And, oh, 10 years ago, I wrote a chapter in a book called, Precedent's Proper Place. It's chapter 5 of America's Unwritten Constitution, in which I explain from an originalist point of view, and I'm an originalist, if precedent is egregiously wrong, it yields to the best understanding of the Constitution itself. Plessy was egregiously wrong. It yields to Brown versus Board of Education. That's just what the Dobbs draft, uh, leaked Dobbs draft said. That's just what Alito's opinion said and did. That's what Kavanaugh joined. And I'm actually telling anyone who's actually seriously paying attention that that's what will happen. So so all these people, they, they tweet a little sentence of mine out of context as if I actually was saying the opposite of what I said. And they tweet out of context these quotes from the nominees who say it's a settled precedent. A row is a settled precedent. Row is a settled precedent. Row is a settled precedent. Here's what they didn't say they didn't say row was a correct precedent and they often refuse to answer that question, and if Vic and I had had our way, they would have been obliged to answer that question. That's what I was actually trying to talk about in the second half of the op-ed, how we should change the rules of the confirmation process so they would actually have to say what they think about, they can't make promises, but what they actually think about Brown, or Roe, or Plessy, or Gideon, or Miranda, or whatever. Um, Griswold, my suggestions weren't taken seriously. The confirmation process is deeply broken and it's not just the conservatives you see who are playing this this game. Elena Kagan in her confirmation hearing says uh, we're all originalists but she isn't really and you were seeing that in the the, the her Dobbs dissent. Um, Justice uh, so do my, or I love these people. They're, they really are my friend. She says, oh, um, I'm, I'm, I will take gun rights very seriously indeed, but she didn't. That's not who she is. So none of the justices, truthfully, are at their best moment in the confirmation process, but I do not think it is a lie when you describe something as settled precedent. It's a term of art. Here's my analogy. It's like when a criminal defendant pleads not guilty. And a lot of times they are guilty. And you could say, oh, no, Professor, Um, I learned that you're not guilty. You're you're innocent until proved guilty. No, my friend. You're presumed innocent for certain legal purposes until you prove guilty. You're guilty that nanosecond you do the crime, OJ. You're guilty, guilty, guilty. Even if you got away, you're still guilty, damn it! You were guilty! This this is important to me because I, I believe in victims' rights and, and and that's the feminist in me too because often men are doing horrible things to women, okay? But when you plead not guilty, when you did it, you're actually not, from a legal point of view, lying quite because not guilty means something very special in the courtroom. It means, in effect, prove it. An actor you know, who orders someone else to, to commit a murder they're not really guilty of a crime because it's a play it's it's it's, it's a, a certain words in a certain context when you say it's settled press now, now ordinary people are deeply misled by all this this is why i think the process is bad the, the senators are playing to the cameras
0: you 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 know you're saying ordinary people are deeply misled but yeah. but the confirmation hearing is not a courtroom it do, it doesn't it doesn't yield to not guilty meaning something. It, 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 it doesn't yield to
1: euphemism um, in, in, this, in this way. Well, it does, um, but, but ordinary people don't understand that. Which is why I'm saying, instead of trying to cancel me, you Twitter mobs, actually, I should be you know on the TV explaining that does not mean what you think it means. This is the Princess Bride. Ask them, you're asking the wrong question. The question isn't whether it's settled precedent Um, The question is whether it's correct precedent on your view. And I'm screaming this into the void, Vic and I, and people aren't listening, But, but no. American people, with all due respect, this is on you and not on them because they're using certain words that have a legal significance that you're unaware of. And you think when they say settled precedent that they're making a promise of some sort. They're not allowed to make promises, even in a Mars world. That would be, you know, um, com- a complete violation of legal ethics. They're not even saying, when they say it's settled, that they think if they were to vote today, not making a promise pred- prediction, that they would vote to affirm it. They're just saying it's entitled to a certain kind of weight. So the question is, what kind of weight it's entitled to as a settled precedent, and here... Originalists are going to have different answers than precedent people, and our faithful listeners know all of that because they've heard episodes about all of this. But yes, I'll defend my own honesty in saying I am a liberal, and I made honest predictions, and I think actually they've pretty much been borne out, and the justices I think are pretty honest when they say settle precedent, it did not mean that they would ever vote to Um, affirm a case that they thought was egregiously wrong as a matter of first principles, because the precedent on precedent is that you're allowed to do that, and our audience, our faithful audience knows all that. The rest of you can binge listen, but that's actually our episodes, our primer on precedent, and then the episodes on precedent um, uh, that centered on the, the Dobbs oral argument. We tried to explain that to everyone before actually anyone had said any any justice had opened his or her mouth we were explaining to people this is actually you know what precedent is and isn't
0: so from your point of view then he didn't lie and uh you know aoc shouldn't uh be looking to impeach the justices for having lied in their confirmation hearings uh correct
1: she should not and that's really going to be you know helpful to bring the country together because with all due respect, Representative, they could say the same thing as I just explained about Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan and, may she rest in peace, Ruth Bader Ginsburg who was, you know, who dodged certain things. It's it's a horrible process because the rules of engagement are not the ones that Vic and I have been advocating for forever and that I advocated for in that op-ed itself. I'm proud of that op-ed. I stand by it. And, and I will renounce at least you know, I think I made one prediction that turns out to have been disconfirmed a little bit I think I was a little too exuberant about uh, what Clarence Thomas would and wouldn't possibly do so we'll, we'll come to that later
0: okay well actually we're we're almost there because we were uh, our next topic on uh, was going to be the podcast when we talked about when we did some analysis of the uh, draft decision and we talked about the um, the question of whether the justices were interested in taking away your contraception rights.
1: Yes. So I write in the Wall Street Journal that I didn't think contraception was in play because of the Dobbs draft. In our podcast episode at about the same time, I, 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 I get excited. Um, and and I was responding to, uh, um, especially my um, some of my friends, who I thought were misreading the, the Dobbs draft and trying to scare people. Fear monger. And that includes, you know, dear friends of mine, people who have come on the podcast. Everyone who's listened to this podcast knows how much I love Neil Katyal, but I thought he was wrong in saying that um, Dobbs really put Griswold in play. The right of contraception, the Dobbs draft. I didn't think it did. And I called out Steve Vladek for saying that in the uh, op-ed in Wall Street Journal. None of my students, and he did that in a um, op-ed uh, co-authored by Leah Littman. I'm especially hard on my friends because I'm an honest person and I don't know uh, Professor Littman so well, but I do know Steve Laddock, I do know Neil Katyal, so I, I, I mentioned them, but of course I needed to give Professor Littman co-author status. And, and so I actually said the following. that you know, I didn't think that any of the justices were really challenging the Griswold. And I'll come back to that. I still Um, believe that for eight of the nine, and we'll talk about Justice Thomas in just a moment. Here's why I said it, and I also said there was something to be very worried about in the Dobbs draft. It just wasn't contraception or interracial marriage or even same-sex marriage or sodomy laws in general. I said that's not what actually you should worry about. Here's why you shouldn't, because the draft actually goes out of its way to say that, that, that the leaked draft um, this is only about abortion and the final draft said the same thing. But it also said that the analysis for unenumerated rights that we use is an outlier analysis. That laws that are very widespread are more likely to be upheld but a really um, unusual law in only you know one state or a handful of states, that law is much more vulnerable as an outlier if it restricts liberty in some way, even if the liberty is not an enumerated right, even if it's an unenumerated right, the Dobbs, leaked Dobbs draft in the final version actually says, we look to, not to, just to 1868 or 1791, we look to today, the current moment, to see how many states permit a certain thing, how many states prohibit um, that very same exercise of, of liberty. I said, Griswold is not in play because, and I've explained this actually on several occasions, I think, in this podcast, and it's building on Chapter 3 of America's Unwritten Constitution, which I published 10 years ago in a Yale Law Journal article, and we'll put it up yet again. I said, here's how unenumerated rights analysis happens in America. And I actually highlight a case called Glucksburg, this was 10 years ago, which is the case that's highlighted by the Dobbs draft and now the the Dobbs majority opinion. You look actually at at state practice. If you want to find out what the actual unenumerated rights of Americans are, let's look to actual American custom, tradition, practices, mores, and not just look at polls which can be unreliable and which can miss regional variation and intensity of preference and other things. That's not how we do law in America. We don't enact laws by polls. But we enact them state by state, city by city, county. um, And let's look at the actual laws on the books. Griswold was easy, I said, because, um, which is the contraception case, only one state really tried to limit contraception, and that was um, Griswold. And I said, oh, Harlan mentions this in a companion case to Griswold called Poe versus Allman and the... Dobbs, leaked Dobbs draft, talked about that as an important element of their analysis, citing Glucksberg. Here's what they I don't know if it was in the draft, but it's definitely in the final opinion. Justice Alito in footnote 47 of the draft explicitly mentions this about Griswold. So now Griswold is different not just because it doesn't involve unborn life, but also Because, this is footnote 47, here's what he says in the text. When Roe was decided in 1973, all sorts of statutes prohibiting abortion were still in effect in 30 states, okay? And in fact, either 49 or 50 states actually had laws that weren't uh, in compliance with Roe. So, uh, but he's mentioning 30 here and elsewhere he mentions citing Professor Lawrence Tribe, 49 or 50, footnote. By way of contrast, at the time Griswold v. Connecticut, 1965, was decided, the Connecticut statute at issue was an extreme outlier. Here's now what Justice Kavanaugh actually mentions in the gun case, which we'll talk about in more detail later on. He writes a concurring opinion in that case, just as he writes one in the abortion case, Dobbs, and he again points out, that the, the law at issue in, in that case is an outlier law. Here's what he actually says. The court correctly holds that New York's outlier licensing regime you know, violates the Second Amendment. And what does he mean by outlier? That only six states have laws on the books that give the government the kind of dis, super discretion to grant a, a permit or to withhold a permit. Only six states you know, have this highly highly discretionary system about who can have a gun for self-protection when they uh, walk out of their house and who can't so the i said i didn't think griswold was at issue in the dobbs draft because it's using an outlier analysis and you can say oh well what if a lot of states start passing laws restricting contraception today and i'm saying I don't think that's actually very likely to happen. And by the way, in our confirmation hearings Amy Coney Barrett said that it was very unlikely to happen and she I think repeated the word very six times. We quoted that on an earlier podcast episode. So here's what would need to actually happen for contraception to really be in play. And I'm not talking about just I U D, which you know raises some po- possible issues uh, uh, because some people think it has abortifacient properties, something like that. I'm talking about sponges and the pill and cervical caps and uh, condoms and all sorts of other things. Let me just put one, uh, the I U D, just to one side for just one second. But, but I, I think even that's safe. But but you would have to have not one state, not Oklahoma or Arkansas or Mississippi, a whole bunch of states. Passing laws like this um, before they would be taken seriously at the Supreme Court. And, and I said, well, I don't think that's likely to happen. And under the analysis that the court has given on this outlier analysis, it's telling us why Griswold is different than this. And, and it uses the word outlier. Now, I said maybe too exuberantly. Gee, I didn't think any of the justices really thought that there's a contraception issue. The majority opinion that actually is issued doubles down on its claim that this is only about abortion. Kavanaugh, another thing that he stresses in his concurrence, is not just the right of travel, but he goes out of his way to talk about that what's not at issue is same-sex marriage or interracial marriage or LGBT rights more generally. And some of them are also not at issue because they involve equality rights above and beyond unenumerated liberty rights. But he goes out of his way to stress that and let me actually read the language because this is the Kavanaugh that I predicted who would be, you know, in the middle of the court. He was, again, the least extreme of the Trump appointees and And here's what he says in his concurrence in the Dobbs case. Here's what Justice Kavanaugh says in relevant part. First is the question of how this decision will affect other precedents involving issues such as contraception and marriage, in particular decisions in Griswold v. Connecticut, Eisenstadt v. Baird, Loving v. Virginia, and Obergefell v. Hodges. I emphasized what the court today states, overruling Roe does not, and he emphasizes the word "not" italics, mean the overruling of these precedents, and does not, he emphasizes the word "not" threaten or cast out on those precedents. Okay, and um, so that's Kavanaugh, and he's the fifth vote. But now let me just
0: say that the, the um, first of all, in the dissent, they, you know, poo-poo that, and I, I've also. You know, heard like for example, Professor Tribe um, also say, "Oh, that's not you know, that's not how constitutional analysis works. Um, the way it works is you set forth your rationale, and then if that rationale applies to these other cases, then it applies to these other cases. Whether or not you said that it's not in danger, and and then this goes goes together with the notion that the um, in the dissent they say, well." The, uh, the reasoning in the majority is that anything after 1868, any right that wasn't in place in 1868, you know, doesn't exist, and if contraception wasn't in place in 1868, although you can make an argument that it was, um, but even so, then it doesn't matter, we can't, you know, it'll, it'll be ruled out under the same reasoning as in this decision, notwithstanding the fact that you said it wouldn't apply.
1: Great, thank you for that. Now, and, and it's not just Professor Tribe, and I'm gonna mention some other people who've said that and why I respectfully disagree. So first of all, I read you, Kavanaugh, who's about as clear as you know, it was possible that saying he doesn't think that. I'll, I'll give you my answer to Tribe's critique. Here's what the majority opinion says. This is the final majority opinion. This is at page 66. Um, for the court, all five justices. But Justice Thomas does say some kind of funky things. But and to ensure that our decision is not misunderstood or mischaracterized, we emphasize that our decision concerns the right to abortion and no other right. Nothing in this opinion should be understood to cast out on precedents that do not concern abortions. Professor Tribe is saying, you can't do that, you know, the logic is what the logic is. And I'm saying, yes, Professor Tribe, yes, dissenters, the logic is what the logic is, but the logic isn't just 1868, it's counting today. Look at footnote 47, it's about outliers. Look at Professor Tribe, I love you, but look at the passage that cites you yourself for the proposition that Roe was out of sync with the laws of 49 or 50 states at the time. The dissenters would like it, wouldn't it be a lovely world if you know we were so enlightened today compared to 1868, but that's not our world. Our world is one in which lots of people today don't believe in this right, and the way I actually measure that isn't looking at polls, but looking at state laws. So I'm saying Here's the logic of the position of of the majority. If a right is in the text, it's enforced. If a right is an unenumerated right, we might ask whether it was understood as a traditional uh, consensus American right in 1868, We should also ask, or 1791, there's a debate about that, but we should also look at today, this majority, and whether it's a right that's generally recognized by American practice today, state by state by state. That's actually what this draft does when you read it actually carefully and charitably. You try to understand why they think that abortion is different. It's not just because abortion involves an unborn life, but also because an abortion right flunks the current consensus test, but a contraception right passes the current consensus test, and that's footnote 47. And in the um, the Bruin case, the gun case, they do again an outlier analysis. It's not just that Justice Kavanaugh mentions 43 states actually allow you to carry a gun with a if you can get a license, and, and the license is, is not administered in a kind of subjective discretionary way. Only six have this really discretionary subjective system, six out of out of 50, and you might say 43 plus 6 equals 49. The 50th state is Vermont. Thanks, uh, uh, shout out to Eugene Volokh for reminding us of that. But but only six states, you know, had laws like New York's. And Kavanaugh mentions that in his concurrence. But so did the majority opinion by Justice Thomas in that case. So so my answer to Tribe, and to the dissenters and to the folks on the podcast, uh, Strict Scrutiny. I'm going to talk to them very directly in just a moment. Professor Leah Littman, Professor Kate Shaw, Professor Melissa Murray. I'm going to talk about them um, directly in just a moment. Um, but I think the majority of the dissent is mischaracterizing the analysis of the majority, and so is Professor Trump. They're m- misunderstanding what the conservatives are saying and not saying which is an outlier analysis, accounting analysis, that's not linked only to 1868, because if it were, all that other stuff wouldn't belong in the opinion, and it is in the opinion, very pointedly so. And it's especially in Kavanaugh's concurring opinion, when you put his concurrences together in the Bruin case, the Gunn case, and the Dobbs case, he's an outlier analysis person as am I. I've, all, I've advocated for this approach for ten years, as is the Glucksberg case that's central to Dobbs. The Dobbs leaked draft, and the Dobbs majority opinion, and that's all about counting to determine current consensus. Not altogether different from, indeed, strikingly similar to how we decide what kind of punishments today are cruel and unusual. Now, one word about the strict scrutiny um, podcast. They highlighted what Clarence Thomas said. A whole bunch of other folks have highlighted what Clarence Thomas has said, but some of them have not even mentioned what Brett Kavanaugh said. And you have to, because he's actually, you know, and, and, and I think actually, truthfully, the Strict Scrutiny podcast did not even mention that Kavanaugh concurrence. Maybe they did, and if so, I apologize. You have, all three of you have an open invitation to come on this podcast and correct the record. Um, but I didn't hear you talk about that and, and I think that's important. I did hear you talk about Clarence Thomas and I'm gonna say a word about that in just a minute. But, but here's a friendly invitation, a couple of them. One, come on our podcast, any one of you, all three of you and, and we can hash it out who actually had the better predictions about things and, and what this really said or didn't say. But if you're actually, honestly, worried about Griswold being in play, or Eisenstadt, or Loving, or Lawrence, or Obergefell, here's a friendly bet that I'll propose. This, you can think of this as an insurance policy of a certain sort, because this would bum you out. It would bum me out too, but I'll, I'll be an insurer of sorts for you. Here, here's the bet. Um, every month that passes from here to you know, forever, in which None of those cases is overturned by the Supreme Court. For every month that passes, you'll find you'll, 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 you'll say one nice thing about me in that month. For every month that passes, when we don't have an overruling of Obergefell or of Lawrence or of Loving or of Griswold or Eisenstein, you say one nice thing about me. And contrarywise, if ever any of these cases is overruled or, or, or seriously even undermined by, by the Supreme Court, I'll say one nice thing about each of you every week for the rest of my active professional life. Okay, you know, so I don't think it's going to happen, um, and I'm willing to sort of you know bet my reputation on it. I'm doubling down on it, and I've given you the reasons why. Because I don't think lots of states are actually looking to do this, um, and and apart from Justice Thomas, no. I, I keep saying, apart from justice, here's what I did say on the podcast earlier. I said, you know, I, I went through and I said, Clarence Thomas isn't interested in doing this. And I took him at face value. In his confirmation hearings, he actually said that he had believed in Griswold. He didn't think it was merely settled precedent. He, th- he thought it was correct. That's the key question. But in his concurrence... He basically said, oh, Griswold's kind of got to go because it's substantive due process, and he doesn't like any substantive due process. We've talked about substantive due process in previous episodes. We'll talk about it again, but he just doesn't like a certain legal theory. But when you read what he then goes on to say, he says, oh, but it may very well be, and he doesn't say more than that, but it may very well be that these cases that are substantive due process cases can be be upheld instead as privileges or immunities cases. And you might say, he he says maybe, but will he really think so? I actually think at the end of the day, you know, he, he will, and here's why. He's more theoretical and more of a textualist and he's more professorial, I think, than many of the other justices. It matters to him whether you call it substantive due process or privileges or immunities. Here's why I think in the end he's gonna actually say um, cases like Griswold are okay on an unenumerated rights analysis, but their privileges are privileges and immune to citizens, because that's how he thinks about gun rights. Everyone has applied to states. Quick primer. The Second Amendment applies only against the federal government. That's true of the entire Bill of Rights. Almost all the other provisions of the Bill of Rights came to be applied against the states by the end of the Warren Court, thanks to Hugo Black. The courts, that's called incorporation. These rights are incorporated against states and localities. The court used due process to do it, and some of these rights are kind of substantive rights, like a freedom of speech or free exercise of religion, and yet it used the due process clause, which seems procedural. So incorporation was actually a kind of substantive due process. When it came To the Second Amendment, the Warren Court never talked about the Second Amendment and whether it applied against states or not. It said the first did, and the fourth, the fourth, first Amendment did speech, press, petition, assembly, free exercise. Fourth Amendment, right of search and seizure. Um, Fifth Amendment, um, um, rights of self-incrimination and 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 just compensation, and all the rest. They never said anything about the Second Amendment. They didn't quite say what it means, whether it was an individual right or not, and they surely didn't say it's an individual right that incorporates against the states. That is the Warren Court. The Roberts Court and the, um, said, oh, it is actually an individual right. That's the, um, the, the Heller decision. And in City of Chicago versus McDonald, for Justice Scalia, City of Chicago versus McDonald, Justice Leeds said, oh, it applies against the states. And Justice Leeds writes an opinion saying it applies against the states, and we, we've called all the other cases, incorporation cases, due process cases, let's do the same here. Thomas writes a special concurrency. Saying, oh, I don't like the substantive due process. This doesn't make sense to me, but I think it applies because of the privileges are immunities clause. That's what he writes in a separate opinion in City of Chicago versus McDonald. And now what's his most op- important opinion ever? This week, or last week, it's the Bruin decision, building on Heller and City of Chicago versus McDonald, and reading the Second Amendment very robustly against states how does he do that? He actually says, well, we've called it substance due process. Some of us think it's privileges, immunities, you know, potato, potato. Well, if that's what he thinks about when it comes to incorporation, oh, you can get the same thing that other people have called substance due process by using privileges and immunities. When it comes to incorporated rights, at the end of the day, I think he'll do the same thing for unenumerated rights. But Professor Littman, you got me. I confess that I was too exuberant in basically thinking that Clarence Thomas would never, you know, raise a question about Griswold if he, he did. He, and he went out of his way to do it. And I'm thinking, oh, my friend, oh, Clarence, why are you doing this? Oh, I wish you hadn't done this. But actually, I think other people are reading what you wrote way too despairingly. And here's why they are. Okay, so, so I did a mea culpa. But in the end of the day, I I don't even think I misdiagnosed him. I'm pretty darn sure about the other eight, and I don't think that actually states are going to do this. Why are they misreading him, in my view? Because they don't speak originalism they don't speak conservatism. They are not. They don't hang around. This is true of my friend Larry Tribe too, but definitely the folks on strict scrutiny. So they're shocked at what has just happened with the overrulings of some of these presidents. I'm not at all. I predicted all of these things because I'm an originalist and I've always known Roe is vulnerable. And if you thought I was saying anything else when I advocated for Brett Kavanaugh, my friends, you misinterpreted me because I was I think as clear as as I could be in all my writings about the following propositions, Roe has always been vulnerable on originalist grounds, and all the people on the Trump list are anti-Roe and originalists. Actually, have a narrow view of precedent. If it's egregiously wrong, it should be tossed overboard because that's what the text and history of the Constitution say. Originalism, and that's what the precedent themselves say present uh, on present 1937, uh, the repudiation of Lochner, 1954, Brown's repudiation of Plessy versus Ferguson, the Warren Court more generally. You're reading these dissents, with all due respect, Professor Tribe, Professor Shaw, Professor Littman, Professor Murray, too despairingly and and too broadly because you're not really understanding where these folks are coming from. Now you can say, finally, well, the dissenters are saying the same thing, yes they are and i think they're making a mistake both tactically by overreading the case rather than doing damage control and actually analytically they're actually and they're they're not reading the counter argument for the best argument it could be and they're not seeing the, the big weakness in their position the big weakness isn't merely that they don't have strong evidence from 1868 of american consensus on this issue they don't have strong evidence of American consensus on this issue in 1973, the time of Roe versus Wade, or 2022. That's the problem, you know, if you're going to try to root an unenumerated right in American consensus tradition.
0: I think on Justice Thomas, I follow your analysis, but of course, you know, and you, and you say this, that that's an analysis has applied to an enumerated right, or at least what he considered an enumerated right. He yes. starts off his the Bruin opinion by saying that the that not just that it's a Fourteenth Amendment case, but that it's based on the the Second Amendment right to uh, you know carry a gun in public or whatever. Mm-hmm. So some might say that isn't in the Second Amendment; that's an unenumerated right. But he's not saying that. He's saying it's an he's enumerated not. right.
1: Right. Um, so so he's so given now, himself wiggle room right, to actually say. It's a say
0: two-step process. Now, first you'd have to convince him that contraception you know, is an unenumerated right that that the people have uh, the, at the federal level in order for mm-hmm. it to, you know, that it's a privilege or immunity of, of a being a citizen of the United States. And so, th- then you go from there to saying, okay, well... The state it's incorporated against the states.
1: So- okay, Andy, I knew you were going to go here because you're always so interested in this. I promise we'll um, uh, explore this in a subsequent episode in much greater detail. Because you know nothing makes me happier than talking about all this um, ar- arcane stuff. But f- for present purposes here, audience is what mm-hmm. you should hear. Justice Thomas did say some things that I think were inconsistent with what I would have predicted and did predict. I think though at the end of the day he still will actually be with the program, but even if not, okay. The other four justices in this majority opinion do not share his views on that so far as I can determine. And Justice Kavanaugh, who is the key swing, the fifth vote, the pivot of the court, emphatically just went out of his way. It's you know, to, to say as clearly as possible these other rights aren't to play and, and here's why. Because he believes in those other rights. It doesn't they don't need to be settled because in his mind they're correct. And that's why I wanted him, you know, over others because he's a Kennedy clerk who really understands LGBT and Obergefell and Lawrence and the rest. So I don't actually think that I misdiagnosed, mispredicted Kavanaugh. I think he's actually pretty close to the person I thought he would be, but I never thought he would be someone who has the view of Roe versus Wade that Larry Tribe does, or that Elena Kagan does, or Stephen Breyer, or Sonia Sotomayor.
0: Okay, so you don't believe that, um, that the sky is falling regarding these decisions. Um, but here's
1: what I do believe that where the sky might be falling. So I was very critical of Neil Katyal who's you know, my love, Steve Ladek, who's one of my favorite students, um, and that was a, a, an op-ed joined by Leah Littman, whom I don't know, but since I was criticizing Steve, I had to mention her as well. I, I, I'm, I'm more cautious about cri- criticizing people that I that I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of harder on my my, my friends. I, I thought they were saying the sky is falling Uh, kind of ridiculously, oh, this is about LGBT, and and it's about enumerated rights, like equality, and oh, it's about same-sex marriage, and oh, it's about contraception, and oh, it's about interracial marriage, um, sodomy laws. No. But here's what I said we should be very worried about, and this is what I said in the Wall Street Journal piece when the Dobbs draft was leaked, and all this, remember, audience, is just why you should be listening to this podcast because it's telling you the things that you shouldn't be worried about and you should be worried about and why. I said, here's what you need to worry about. Not this Mississippi law. It's about fifteen prohibiting abortion at, at week 15, and yes, that's moving away from a row which is at viability week 22, but only four percent of abortions occur, you know, after week 15. And you can travel, so it's not Mississippi. You can say, yeah, but in the end, that um, only Roberts wanted to sort of write a Mississippi-specific thing. It's about all abortion laws. So, Achille, you can't just talk about week 15. You have to talk about fetal heartbeat and week six and all the rest. Okay, fine. Even if all abortion laws are going to be upheld now, um, in in general. Uh, as long as there's a, nothing else is implicated, you see Kavanaugh, and as long as there's a right to travel, oh, this is going to be not great, but wealthy women and middle-class women are going to be able to travel and indigent women are going to need, are going to be, can be funded by public resources in abortion-protective states like New York and California and Illinois and by private charities and by employers as well. So, so I, I, I said all of that um, in the Wall Street Journal and talking about the Dobbs deal. So I said, that's not actually the thing that you should worry about. The thing you should worry about is not what Neil Katyal and and Leah Lippmann and Steve Ladek were telling you and um, Mark Joseph Stern and and, and Slate. No, I said in the Wall Street Journal, the thing you should worry about is a national ban on abortion. Because if states can um, prohibit this, the federal government could as well, most likely, and now. That would be a very big – and that, I said, could happen in 2025 if in 2024 the Republicans win the House, the Senate, the presidency. They already have the Supreme Court. So out of the gate, I was saying you need to worry about a President Mike Pence or a President Ron DeSantis or a President um, Donald Trump who's Uh. going to have have a national abortion ban. And and honestly, if anyone out there was saying that before I did – Oh, you know, send us an email, a Professor, or come on this podcast. Because I didn't see that in the Vladek Litman uh, op-ed, or in what Neil was saying, or other people were saying anything. That's the thing to be worried about. I actually sounded an alarm bell on what I thought, and and right after Dobbs, who says, "Oh, I'm for a national abortion ban." Mike Pence says that. Okay, and and you might say, "Oh, that's not going to happen because the kill, even if they win the House." and they win the Senate, and they win the presidency, and we've talked about the trifecta you know, before, and they have the Supreme Court, there's the filibuster. No, I predict that Mitch McConnell will say right now, oh, we're, I'm never gonna get rid of the filibuster, but he will get rid of the filibuster if that would mean that you could have a national ban on abortion, because he's not gonna get rid of it if it's gonna be struck down by the Supreme Court anyway. He doesn't control the House, or the President's gonna veto it, but if everything else were in line, my prediction, as a political scientist, is it could very well happen. So a lot of critics on Twitter and other places, say, oh, this guy's so naive and all the rest. I think most justices, most of the time, actually vote with their party, um, but not always. And I think this is really important to the Republican Party. I've always thought abortion is distinctive to the Republican Party. Look at their platform, and they're not actually raging in general about contraception in general or other things. So, so. I actually said that is the thing to worry about and I said that in the Wall Street Journal and I think actually that prediction has also been one that has aged well. When you saw within minutes of this decision coming down, um, Mike Pence saying that's my platform for the presidency, the national abortion ban.
0: Well, the problem is what is your platform for what to do about it other than win an election?
1: Vote yes, and, and and so I understand why some folks are have been you know trying to r- r- um, ratchet up the volume. Part of it is I'm now I'm, I'm going to be a cynical political scientist. Gas prices are high, so let's change the subject. Let's change the subject to abortion. Let's change the subject to uh, the January 6th insurrection. Uh, Let's change the subject to Uvalde and guns. Let's change the subject to climate change. And I understand that. If you're losing on gas prices, you want people to focus on something else. So I understand that political motivation. I understand why Chuck Schumer would say that, or Nancy Pelosi would say that, or AOC would say that, or Joe Biden, or Kamala Harris for that matter, would say that. But I'm a scholar. And I understand why pundits might say it. but, But... you're not just, you know, a great commentator, you're a great professor, and, and professors actually, and and Professor Tribe, and Professor Lippmann, and Professor Vladek, our job as scholars is actually not to be shills for one party or other, but to actually, you know, speak the truth as we see it. And I simply did not think it was true that all these other things were genuinely at risk or in play, Griswold, Eisenstadt, Loving, Lawrence, Obergefell, but I did think that a national ban on abortion was actually on the table. The thing is, that's more of a 2024 issue than a 2022 issue, but I'm just going to tell you straight what I think. And now you understand, audience, in a deeper way, why You know, even if you don't care about the fate of the republic, you know, because if Donald Trump, you know, wins because of ISL, which is like a John Eastman theory on steroids, oh my gosh, even if somehow you don't care about that, but if if you do care about abortion, this is another reason why you have to care about ISL. You see, that's all about 2024. I'm keeping my eye on the real issue, which I think is 2024, not just for abortion, but because it could portend um, the return of Donald Trump and the end of the republic.
0: And uh, i tell you, though, who else thought, saw this about the national abortion ban before the decision came out were the dissenting justices. On page three of the dissent, they say, most threatening of all, no language in today's decision stops the federal government from prohibi- prohibiting abortions nationwide. Once again, from the moment of conception, without exceptions for rape or incest. If that happens... The views of an individual state citizens, that's a quote from the opinion, uh, will not matter. The challenge for a woman will be to finance a trip, not to New York or California, but to Toronto.
1: I honestly think I'm among the first commentators to highlight that issue, and I did so in the Wall Street Journal, whose main exposition was actually that that other folks were being unduly alarmist. Let's just read for the audience uh, the relevant passages of that, just so they so they hear what I said. Remember, this is right after the Dobbs draft has been leaked. Here's how I open. Um, this is on May 14. The recent leak of a draft Supreme Court opinion overruling Roe v. Wade has prompted many commentators to charge that a hyper-politicized conservative court is on the verge of losing its legitimacy and plunging America into a constitutional abyss. Should the draft become the court's ruling, they argue, it would threaten a wide range of basic rights and perhaps the rule of law itself. These are dire assessments reflecting the country's intense long-standing divide over the issue of abortion, but they don't stand up to scrutiny." So that's how the piece begins, saying, you know, um, I'm not with Vladek and Litman and Katyal and Stern and others, but here's what I do say toward the end. Here's the prediction, here are all the predictions. In the end, I say, Dobbs will probably be decided by a six-to-three vote, with Justice Alito joined by the four other justices who reportedly endorse his draft. Thomas, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. Chief Justice John Roberts, who reportedly is less keen on the draft, will likely uphold the Mississippi law on the narrow ground that it gives a wavering pregnant woman enough time—fifteen weeks—to decide. And then I go on to say, in recent decades, less than five percent of all abortions have occurred after fifteen weeks. Now, here's key two paragraphs. So long as abortion remains legal in many blue states, and nothing in the Dobbs draft dictates otherwise, most women who miss deadlines in their red home states should be able to travel to get the treatment they desire. Indigent women will doubtless experience special burdens, which makes it imperative for charities to ramp up assistance for women in distress. A very different issue, however, would arise were Republicans to sweep national elections in 2024 and then pass a national abortion ban. This is the scenario that should set off the loudest alarm bells for Americans who support abortion rights. So here's what I'm saying. I think I called it all the way down the line correctly in my prediction, and, and if any of the, the po- folks that I've just criticized in the last few minutes, the other people who were focusing on ethics, actually focused on that before I did I'll buy you lunch, and I will sing your praises on this podcast in, the, in our next episode. Just let me know, find me, show me where you, you, you said this in which op-ed, and I'll give you a huge shout out. And I'll apologize if actually you said it first, um, and whereas I'm saying I don't think you did.
0: So you know, I just read from the dissent, um, and one thing that I think characterizes the dissent is that it's uh, it's scary. Um, it makes a lot of predictions about terrible things that will happen as a consequence of of this uh decision part of it is social things that will happen it also makes all sorts of you know legal predictions and sometimes that may not that might i guess my question to you is what what's the strategy there because you know usually once you've you've lost you've talked about how william brennan when he lost he, he fought like how to win but if he lost, then he spent this time saying, "Well, well, I lost." But actually, the decision is narrow. It doesn't really do this or that or the other, you know. So to try to, you know, control the damage, um, which is what I was
1: trying to do in part. Um, so that doesn't happen here. So yeah, what that, is the but, I, but I think look, I I always try to be the most generous and charitable. They this is what they think, but I think they are victims and their clerks of the same polarization that has afflicted so many, they actually don't charitably under, and this is astonishing, this is the Supreme Court, they're not charitably understanding the best and narrowest arguments on the other side. Uh, let me tell you a story on this. This is a Marcus Constitution, and, and Steve Breyer is stepping down, has just stepped down, and he was my boss, um, and he was the nicest guy in the world. And, um, and this is not the Steve Breyer the Steve Breyer that we saw in Dobbs is not the Steve Breyer that I clerked for. And maybe that's because of the clerks, maybe it's, you know, other things. But I'm, as our audience understands, hot-blooded, you know, passionate. And so when I'm clerking from this on the First Circuit, you know, I'm always encouraging them to, you know, pump up the volume. You know, and say not just that the the other opinion is wrong, but it's very wrong. And he would look at me and say, "Oh yes, Akhil, that will be very convincing to them. Just to you know, to, to say you're not just wrong, but but very wrong." So so he was always telling me, and and he was right. You know, to calm down. You know, this is one case, and I need to work with them on the next case and the case after that. And you know, so I was young and hot blooded. Now. You know, I don't know uh, if these are just the, the clerks who are young and hot-blooded, but the justices are putting their name on it, and, and I think the most charitable interpretation is they really feel that this is scary. Now, part of it might be that they understand that they are maybe the minority. for the One of them is getting out, but the other two, they're going to be there for a while, and and they're on the losing side, and we haven't talked about one of the things... That has made them, uh, that put them on the losing side. We talked about Trump winning, but we didn't talk about Justice Ginsburg's death, that changes the equation uh, dramatically. Um, but, but some of this is, you know, a feeling of frustration because, um, remember, uh, uh, you you actually kind of cut me off at a certain point. But when we had Linda Greenhouse um, on the podcast, I said, imagine this alternative universe. And, and you said, stop, stop, you know, you're gonna make her cry. Um, Linda, that is. I said, if Hillary Clinton had just managed, you know, to get a few more votes in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, she's President of the United States. And if she gets a few more votes, the Democrats get a few more votes for their Senate candidates in uh, Pennsylvania. Um, so it's a Democratic senator from Pennsylvania, not Pat Toomey, and a Democratic senator from Wisconsin, not Ron Johnson. So is President Hillary Clinton and a Democratic Senate. So the first thing that happens is Merrick Garland gets confirmed, okay? So now there are five Democrats on the court for the first time since 1973, because Scalia has unexpectedly died. Now, you know with President Clinton and Democratic Senate, now Steve Breyer steps down, Ruth Bader Ginsburg steps down. They are replaced by a Democratic appointees Let's imagine Katenji Brown Jackson and you know um, some player to be named later. Um, now, who is the de facto chief justice of the United States? That would be Sonia Sotomayor. She's the senior justice of the, the, the Democratic coalition. Um, and who is the playmaking guard, the the William Brennan of this of this new court? Oh, that's Elena Kagan. So so Sonia Sotomayor becomes Chief Justice Earl Warren, and Elena Kagan becomes Justice William Brennan. Okay, that's that could have happened. okay. Instead, they're relegated to you know, perpetual dissenting status, minority status, for the rest of their likely time on the court. And they're seeing it with distinctive clarity now because this is the first year of the full Trump Court in place. It's not really the Trump Court, it's the Federal Society Court. And I'm glad it's the Federal Society Court, not the Trump Court. It's not Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell and John Eastman and, and their band of, of crooks and crackpots. So. It, it could have been this alternative world, and now they're seeing it, and they're seeing it with distinctive clarity at the end of the term. This is, you know, where we're going to be. So, you know, and they, they, of course they care about American women.
0: Well, I mean, it's more than that. The, the, this but, this case has been, you know, I mean, Roe is, you know, has been so central to the entire career of Elena Kagan, for example. You know, and, yeah,
1: and, and, and not just Roe, okay, which is important, but their entire vision. And this is what we're going to talk about in future episodes. And I have a piece in Time magazine just today, Time um, online, about this. It's not just abortion. It's their entire jurisprudence which is precedent, 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 and they're not textual. They talk about liberty, 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 as if there's a liberty clause in the Constitution, which there isn't. Um, it's just it's a due process clause, and it's about process, and it doesn't protect liberty as such any more than it protects property as such. It says you no know, no state shall deny any person life, liberty, or property without due process of law. That's all it says, but they're paleo on all this. They actually aren't textualist. They aren't originalist, and it's not just Dobbs. It's Carson about religious schools and, and vouchers, and it's Bruin about guns in New York. This is nothing less than an originalist revolution, and and they're they're not originalists, so they're out of position. And uh, of course, they care about women, and and that's what they're saying. And, and it would you know. But I'm saying at a deeper level, they now see that that methodologically as well as kind of politically they're on the wrong side uh, going forward and I th- I think methodologically they're not doomed to that you can be a liberal and be an originalist I'm both and I think their best strategy going forward is to actually start to develop um, an outside shot and be um, as it were like, be able to, 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 to make originalist arguments as well as press and arguments because you and I have talked about this here there are many problems with press and arguments um, the Constitution says it's the supreme law of the land, not the precedents. You took an oath of office to actually the Constitution. Um, precedent about precedent is the precedent can be discarded. That's 1937 and 1954 and Barnett overruling Gobindus and so on. We've talked about all that in previous episodes. But also for dissenters, precedent is particularly actually short sighted and, um, and impotent. It has uh, the, the shelf life of, of a head of lettuce, because as soon as you lose the case, the, the relevant precedent is on the, the, the folks on the other side. And if you're only a present person, you've got to actually swivel around and, and salute the new precedent. But if you're an originalist, you can say, I stand on the text. I stand on history. And it means the same thing today as it meant yesterday. And it'll mean the same thing tomorrow. And yes, I lost. But that's because I was right. And you were wrong. And I'm going to keep fighting because the text says what it says. And the history says what it, uh, what it means. But you can't do that if you're a precedent person. So, so they've painted themselves into a bit of a corner. And who warned them about all of that? You and I did in previous episodes on all this. We've had nine episodes on, on Dobbs and we talked about how precedent was actually a bad strategy for the libs.
0: Of course you you're talking about the importance of originalism. Um and you've just authored a piece in Time magazine um online, which you uh you just referred to, went up uh I guess today, right? Mm-hmm. Um and uh in it, you talk about kind of a triumph of originalism here, not to be triumphalist uh, at all, but that you're saying that it's ascendant as, yes. a, as a means of, uh, of reasoning on constitutional matters.
1: Yes. The Federalist I mean, Society has prevailed. It's an originalist court. P- judges who become justices often don't have a strong... Um, methodological vision and definitely not an originalist vision because as a lower court judge you're applying precedent all the time. That's what I actually quoted earlier in this episode. Um, vertical precedent is very strong indeed because you take your or- marching orders from the Supreme Court. But once you're on the Supreme Court and you have the ability to overrule or rethink precedent, the question is are you an originalist or not? Um, and they, they They said they were because you know the, otherwise the Federal society doesn't basically you know move them to the top of the list, but only now in the in, at the end of this term has it become clear yeah, they really are they they're of different flavors. You've got Clarence Thomas, who's a different kind of originalist than Brett Kavanaugh, and we've begun to talk about that a little bit, and Amy Coney Barrett hasn't fully defined herself yet, but the Federal society has prevailed they've put. A lot of self-understood originalists on the court, and this term, they're beginning to see what originalism actually means and entails, and writing opinions that reflect that. We've talked about Dobbs a bit. We're going to talk in later episodes about Bruin and Carson, different flavors of originalism. I'm an originalist, so I actually think this is a good thing. I've been urging my fellow liberals to play this game, and they have been less inclined to do it. Breyer isn't that way. Kagan isn't that way. Sotomayor isn't that way. I don't know, you know, uh, what Katenji Brown Jackson, who just took her oath of office today, will be. But the Time magazine piece basically says they've got to become originalists because you can only fight, you can't fight originalism merely with precedent for the reasons we talked about, you know, uh, originalism trumps precedent. So, you know, As a matter of both originalism and precedent <clears throat> itself, precedent on precedent.
0: So I'm going to ask you the same question that I asked when you were writing the article, which is, okay, you're saying that the more liberal justices need to harness originalism in their arguments, and then they'll have a shot. But they'll still have three votes. So, you know, how do they get to five? So there are those that would say that the Federalist Society project is an originalist project, perhaps, but it's really an ideological project. Some would say, and that originalism is merely a means to that end. Um, that through originalism, they they foresee that you or foresaw that you could come up with results that meshed with their ideology. Um, you've pointed out that in the past there were all sorts of liberal results that came out of originalism. But you had the Warren Court coming up with one original result, uh, one liberal result after another, not a lot of conservative results. Now you have the Roberts Court coming up with one conservative result after another. If originalism isn't ideological, how do you explain that, number one? And number two, in any event, how, you know, what makes you think that the conservatives will respond to liberal originalist arguments any more than they'll respond to any other liberal argument?
1: So here we come full circle, and I think we end the podcast, this episode, Andy, this special episode. Um, we come back to what I said earlier, that I'm a liberal, and I'm an originalist. And I said one thing earlier, that, um, that I was responsible, as much as anyone, for um, developing the legal theory that um, ended up upholding Obamacare in the Supreme Court. And I didn't persuade most of the conservatives. Uh, Four of them voted against it. And I thought that was an easy case. It was embarrassing that they did. But I only needed to persuade one, and and we did, and it was John Roberts. And partly it was, you see, on originalist ideas about the centrality of the tax power to the constitutional project. Okay? So full circle is ISL. I was going to say, that'll
0: be a good test, won't it?
1: That's the big one. Um, what Adam Liptak earlier in a piece that quoted Vic very extensively and, and, and prominently cited to Vic's in my forthcoming article in the Supreme Court Review said, There's "This is 800-pound gorilla case uh, that's 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 coming up." So, he, here's what I want to say: Vic and I, if you read that piece, and I hope the audience does, are aiming directly at Brett Kavanaugh. If he decides in our favor, we win. And our article talks a lot about precedent, but it also talks about originalism. We think we've got the original history f- you know, five ways from Sunday, um, and, and and the text, too. So it will be a good test, because I think we start out with Ketanji Brown-Jackson, even though she, you know, she's been on the court a couple of hours. But, but I think we start out with her, and with Sonia Sotomayor, and with Elena Kagan. And I think we actually start out with The Chief, given what he's actually written in, in um, other... Uh, opinions. We start with four. This is a lot like Obamacare, you see. Then we, there were four liberals on the court, and, and I I started with those four. I needed to get one other conservative vote, because RBG was still around, and so my conservative vote was the chief as the fifth. Well, here I'm counting him, you know, with the three liberals. i got to get one more. I, I could get Kavanaugh. I could get Amy Coney Barrett, you know, um, maybe Sam Alito, maybe Neil Gorsuch, you know, maybe Clarence Thomas, because I believe, actually, that constitutional law is not merely politics, that there are facts that matter, what the text says and doesn't say, what the history shows and doesn't show. I think that there is a a very good possibility that Vic and I on ISL get one more vote, and we get that vote in part on originalist grounds. The precedents clearly support us, but we've just seen that's not enough because people are able to overturn precedent if it's egregiously wrong. So at a minimum, you know, here's the one-two punch. Vic says the precedents clearly support our position and they would need to be egregiously wrong as a matter of originalism and surely they're not that. But I'd go even further than that. It's not just that the, the precedents are not egregiously wrong as a matter of originalism, but actually originalism shows that these precedents are absolutely correct. Originalism provides extremely strong support for Vicks and my views against ISL, against John Eastman, against some of this nonsense. So it's going to be a very important test of my faith in originalism, in, in some of the justices, and Brett Kavanaugh in particular. That piece ends with a direct address to Brett Kavanaugh, who actually gave some indication that he was beginning to waver on this issue, and maybe because he's beginning to see some of the evidence on the other side. We haven't mentioned it until now, and Andy, I, I wasn't going to. I, this wasn't, isn't what this podcast is all about, but, but I'll, I should mention it because we're talking about why our, our audience should listen to this one if, if they can only pick one. In these the two biggest landmark cases, I would say, are, um, that got the most attention are the Bruin case about guns, and the Dobbs case um, about abortion. Apart from the justices themselves, the only person who was cited, and in fact cited prominently in both of these opinions, is Akil Amar. You know, it's, it's not the folks on the Strict Scrutiny podcast or, you know, the 5-4 podcast or, you know, the We the People podcast, and those are all great podcasts, and there are many, many others. It's, but Akil Amar is cited in both And actually, his books are cited, and his books are cited, and they're originalist books. Here's the methodological move that Clarence Thomas cites him. That is me for. I'm sounding like Bob Dole, you know, referring to myself in the third person. Clarence Thomas, in his decision in the gun case, says, there's a very interesting question whether originalism should look at what the Second Amendment meant in the 1790s, or what it meant in the 1860s when it was applied against the states. And not just the Second Amendment, but the whole Bill of Rights, citing Amar and Kurt Lash. That's a big, important methodological issue. And Amy Coney Barrett writes a concurrence saying, this is a very important methodological issue, and we don't decide it today. But until last week, the court had never even suggested that the key moment to focus on is not today's needs or 1791, but something in between 1868, which is interesting. And in the Dobbs, case. Justice Kavanaugh actually m- mentioned some of my work in, in, in his concurrence, which is a good sign. He's re- you know, he's saying he's reading scholarship. That's the best you can hope for. It's at least they read the arguments on the other side, because they start out conservative, but if they're reading the arguments, at least we have a chance. And he self-identifies as originalist, and I'm writing original scholarship, and so is Vic on this stuff. So, so that gives me reasons for hope. But Sam Alito's majority opinion cites me too, and, and as did the leaked draft. And here's what you know and you can read it different ways. You can read it cynically. This is a, is gotcha, like you know even a few liberals sort of admit that and, and that's twisting the knife. Or you could read it sort of a different way. Law is different than politics at its best. and there are some scholars who seem to still believe that and, and they're not always articulating the liberal position down the line, and they admit that Roe is not well reasoned. Well, I hope then that I'm going to have some credibility with Sam Alito when in this piece that Vic and I wrote, we say Bush versus Gore was every bit as much of a crock, the three concurring, the ISL uh, concurrence, as Roe versus Wade. And if, if I was honest about Roe versus Wade, I'm honest here too, and I'm not trying, you see, to suck up to anyone. Vic and and Clarence Thomas is still alive, and, and he he was among those Bush versus Gore three. Here's what Vic and I actually, in our piece which we wrote long ago, said we described this ISL idea in Bush versus Gore and Bush versus Gore more generally as a, you know, a loud judicial fart. Okay, that's actually the language of. Our, so so we, I'm not trying to suck up to people. I'm trying to say what I think is right and wrong. So here's what I can tell you: if they don't that is the conservatives. If, 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 if they ignore all the originalist evidence against ISL, I'll be very disappointed, but also I'll be surprised. I, I think, and I only have to, you know, Vic and I only have to get kind of one of them. I think at least one of them comes around and redeems, you know, my somewhat naive, you could say, faith in this thing called law. And that's what this podcast is all about, uh, this thing called law.
0: Okay, well, on that note, next week, um, our plan is to continue with this. um, This is a special episode, but we'll continue being special, um, even though we'll go back on our regular rotation. But I think I I want, uh, we want to um, probably talk a little bit more about Dobbs in terms of some of the Legal arguments that are used in the um, in both the, the main opinion and the dissent, and then when we yeah, I'm not sure
1: we did full justice to the dissent today. So yep. we, we we need to do more.
0: I agree, and we'll also look at the uh, at the, the other two major cases. The uh, yes,
1: the Carson case about vouchers in Maine, and the Bruin case about uh, guns, and that one of course builds on the episode that we had with the great Adam Winkler. Yeah, and, and uh,
0: maybe we get to cash in our chit where he agreed to come back. Um, but of course the and the Bruin case is particularly interesting because the Dobbs descent, you know, takes pot shots at the Bruin case um, over and over again. So we'll we'll take a look at that as well. So, um, and then I'll be back in the States. So see you then. And it will be
1: good and it will be good to welcome you back. Thank you. Bye bye.